Okay, I'm here with the amazing Rachel Hollis, influencer extraordinaire, New York Times bestseller author multiple times over, but I want I that's actually where I want to start because that's an achievement, but it seems to matter more to you than might be obvious. It's symbolic to you in some way. Am I reading into this? No, it was. It was a very big deal for me. I wanted to be an author from the time I was 11 years old and realized that someone wrote the books that I loved. And I actually started writing books as a hobby, which which is funny, uh, but I started writing many years ago. And I actually really love those beginning stages of writing books that only a few people cared about. And the anonymity of being able to be awful and slowly try and get better. Books are one of my favorite things in the whole world. So it feels like the sacred space to me to get to be a part of it. And I slowly tried to just become a better writer with every book I really fought to become uh, better and better. And so there is something so poignant to me about being able to experience becoming a New York Times bestseller, but it wasn't until my sixth book. And I, I think that's one of the most special things about my journey. My husband just wrote his first book and it came out and he immediately made the list. <laughs> and that is its own special kind of amazing. But I'm so glad that's not my story because I can tell you that I appreciate it so much more because I had to fight to achieve it. In almost anything you do, I think you have to start with the courage to be rubbish. Yes, absolutely. And, and nothing is that truer than in writing because all writing starts rubbish, all of it. A hundred percent. In fact, I when we spoke at the beginning of quarantine, I'm in week 10, and I don't remember when you and I spoke, but it was at the very early stages of it all. It was. Um, I was telling you that I was crashing a book. So for the first time ever, I was attempting to write a book in an absolutely insane time frame. Like, could I write something inside of quarantine? So since you and I spoke, and now it's week 10, I have turned in that book. Oh, you have not. Yeah, I have. And it was interesting, but it is for sure garbage. <laughs> but I really, like all of my books, I know I'm kind of jumping all over, but all of my books are born in an edit they're not born in the first draft. And so I'm very gracious with myself about a first draft because my process is if I can just get that first draft down, then I can work anything to a place that I want it to be, but I will never be able to mold anything if I don't have anything to start with. I read somewhere, well, you wrote it somewhere that you have a, a few rules about how you write. And one of them is sort of number of words per day, a goal per day, and it, it changes, but you have a target of just number of words of output. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't try and write magic. I don't try and make it great. I just am trying to hit a word count. And depending on how much time I have to complete the book, obviously that word count could be 500. And I've had days where my word count needed to be 10,000, which sounds insane. But my process is, um, I found, uh, have you studied flow? Yeah, yeah, for sure I have. Yeah, so I have found that that is one of the most powerful things that I ever learned and learning to, for lack of a better description, kind of activate my own flow state. 
And one of the things that really puts me into flow is a deadline, even if I make it up in my own mind. So even if my publisher will say, oh, you have until June 1st, I'll tell myself, you have to turn it in by April 3rd, uh, because I will give myself a tight deadline. And that gets me into a state of just create, 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 create. And once I'm in that, I can just the amount that I'm able to put out is so much greater. And I will say this book that I just wrote, I keep joking with my team that it's probably like the worst thing I've ever written, but it felt the best of anything I've ever worked on. It flowed out of me the easiest and it felt the writing process felt the best. And ironically, it was the hardest deadline I've ever had. But I think that it felt so great because I had to stay in flow in order to accomplish it, which made it, once I sat down to write, the words just poured out in a way that they haven't before. What trade-offs did you have to make in order to achieve that sort of intense deadline for this book? It's interesting because I don't know that a lot of the public, if people know me, I don't know that a lot of them actually realize that my greatest core mission in life and the thing I'm most proud of is that I am the founder and CEO of my company. I've been an entrepreneur for 17 years, and it's one of the most important things in my life. And in order for me to write books, uh, it has always, it's funny, writing books, I said before, it was just a hobby. I never, ever saw a world where I would be known as an author. I always believed mm -hmm. I would be an entrepreneur who just wrote books as my fun thing that I did on the side. Mm -hmm. So in order for me to accomplish being able to write, I, I have to give up time doing my job, which is also my passion. So I have to take time away from my business and my company in order to accommodate it. And frankly, it's also why I've learned to write so fast <laughs> and to learn to write with those deadlines because I need to accomplish it. And then I have to get back to my job. Like I was sitting here in the hour before you and I were speaking um, working on a marketing plan for a big initiative we have coming up in a couple months. And the amount of how much I geek out, how much I love the puzzle of that is um, just, it's one of my favorite things. But in order for me to write in that way, it means that I have to step away from that until, um, until I am done. And I will say there was a time in my life where what I would have done was work just as hard, write just as hard, and then lose time with my family. Earlier in my, for lack of a better word, career as a mom, I really struggled with being a workaholic. And I'm obviously I'm talking to the essentialism guy, but it took me a long time to understand and redefine what my values were. And I got to a place in my life where I made the decision that I would never again affect my family time with my work time. So if something has to go, it will either be the writing or the work, but it will never be my time with my children or my time with my husband. So um, that's what I give up is, is the work. And I understand I'm super blessed to own a business and be able to do that. Not everybody has that option. So you were writing from about when tool about when each day? When I'm doing full writing days, when I'm on a deadline, so um, I, I mean, my, my editor would have a heart attack if she understood that I wrote the bulk of that book in the three days before it was due. Um, <laughs> truly. I mean, that's a, 
that's true. Did you pull an all-nighter? I mean, did you go, was it that no, sort of? Just, no, because again, I won't, um, I'll wake up early before the kids. I'll get up at 5 a.m. and I'll work until dinner time. Yep. Uh, because that would be normal for them is for me to be working and then come and be finished at dinner time. So it was that. And so I won't work into the evenings because it's not good for them. And also it's not good for me. I think best the earlier in the day. So at night, my brain's a mess anyway. So it's just better to to have that time and be able to go reconnect and, and not work. But I would work from, you know, 5am to 6pm in order to accommodate those huge days. Mm-hmm. Last time we spoke, uh, one of the things that you said had sort of slipped because of this weird environment that we're in now is that you'd gone from being able to have a pretty good rule of, okay, I'm closed my laptop, I think you said at four yeah. o'clock, and I'm just with the family. But then with all this sort of weirdness where time has become more malleable somehow, and days slip into each other, how have you been doing since? It sounds like with the book, maybe not so well, but t- tell me how you've been doing. I mean, the amount of times that I've thought about that conversation with you since then, you know, when 4 p.m. sort of comes and goes and I'm still <laughs> sitting here. The thing is, I'm very, I'm super mindful of it, which is not something I would have been years ago. So I will honor myself in that I have just such a different experience about it. I'm in a very interesting season with the business in that we had to pivot so drastically uh, for people who are listening or not familiar, my business, uh, a huge part of it is live events. So we do these fantastic conferences and it's a big part of what we do. And in this world that we're living in that went away and we honestly don't know when that will be back. So you you have to assume it's gone. Yeah. At least for me, you have to act as if hundred percent. Because if it, if it comes back, great. Well, then, then, then you've got all the capability and the capacity ready for that, but you can't hold on. Well, maybe it will be two months. Maybe it'll be three. Or maybe it's six months. Well, forget it. Yeah. You know, it's, so when you say pivot, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to, we, you know, Hey, let's figure out the next thing. And so we have completely reorganized how we do business and thank goodness it's working. It's been incredibly successful for us. We're so like our team is so incredible and they've worked so hard, but a big part of why I don't have the normal rest that I would have is because it's just, there's, it's like double the capacity, um, for my brain and managing everybody. But that being said, for me to be in the season that I'm in and to still be shutting off when I normally shut off and to truly be checking out on weekends like I would before is a big deal because there's a time in my life where that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah, you're saying the fact that there are boundaries at all is progress. Such incredible progress for me because there is the fear or the anxiety of taking care, making sure that my team is safe would have kept me working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, I totally relate to that. And and in addition to just the challenge of this moment, for me at least, I, I grew up with no money. <laughs> and Same. so when you, exactly, I know that's you know part of this story that you have shared. So when that's your family of origin story, when that's your experience, there can be a feeling of that you carry with you a burden of like, there's no one to save me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so y- you never stop because there's like a, I don't know, like a, a tiger from your past always just there out of 
yeah. you know, out of sight. Do you the, relate? Yeah. The expression that I heard years ago was if you've ever been hungry, then you'll never be full. And yeah. it's like, it's such a harsh expression, but I heard it years ago and I was like, Oh man, I hear that. I understand that. And I think for me, it's again, like this is tons of work over the years and a lot of therapy to get to the place where I can understand my business enough to be able to look at the bank account and go, no, you're good. Because at this point in my life, it's not working to ensure my family or me, like I'm very confident in that it's my business and and my team and just really wanting to make sure I, I take that so seriously, all of these employees and their families. And I've led my company before through a recession. And so I know how fast it goes from you're doing great to, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. So there've been honestly so many blessings inside of quarantine for me. And one of them is the reminder of what do we actually want to focus on? What are we actually in the business of doing? What do we really care about? How do we make sure that we keep this clarity long after we're out of quarantine? So, um, it's been an interesting 10 weeks, I'll tell you that much. Over those 10 weeks, would you say net positive, net negative? Like overall, do you think you've gained more than you've lost? Oh my, I mean, it's not even close how much I've gained. I am the queen of look for the positive and how can this be for me and how, what can I learn here? I mean, I truly live my life that way. And so I, while I certainly have had moments in this, especially at the beginning that this felt very hard, this has been almost exclusively positive. And I understand that I'm privileged to be able to say that because I'm safe in my home right now. Not everybody has that ability but even when things have gone bad, I'm still able to see how it's for us. Like I know you have a billion kids, like I have a billion kids. And believe me, there are days when I would just, I like, please, I just, can someone take these kids for five minutes? Can we please? <laughs> but even in that, I feel so much closer to my kids than I did 10 weeks ago because we spent so much time together. Well, and, and really what you're saying is you don't want to sound insensitive to people that are having bigger challenges, but if you're being straight up honest, you just have thrived in this challenge Yes, and see it as this creative, not just a pivot like, oh, well, we have to do it, an opportunity to create something new that you wouldn't have done if this hadn't all happened. Absolutely. And I, I will say too, for your listeners, that was a conscious decision. There has been opportunity in this. There have been blessings in this. There have been goodness in this because a weekend, like I had a week where I freaked out and then I got a hold of myself and was like, you are going to create amazing things in this. You are going to figure out new lines of revenue. You are going to have a stronger marriage on the other side of this. You are going to be a better mom. Like I claimed it. And then I have done my best. I haven't always gotten there, but I've done my best to live each day trying to live out a life that is claiming that as my truth. What was the freak out week like? Like describe <laughs> that. There was a lot of vodka. Um, and there's a lot of vodka for me and I'm also a huge lightweight. So it's a lot of vodka is not that much, but, um, 
And then there was, there was shame in that for me because drinking more than I should is a coping mechanism as a negative coping mechanism from my past that I worked really hard to not, you know, absolutely have fun, you know, have a drink with my friends or have wine, whatever. But it had been a really long time since I was using alcohol to cope. And so I felt some shame in falling back into an old bad habit. And um, I had it, you know, and that's cyclical, right? So you are triggered, you reach for this negative coping mechanism, you do it, that creates shame, you're triggered again, and you kind of stay in this vicious cycle. So I had a few days of that. And then, you know, I, I just was, I, would, yeah. I just was reading something yesterday about this for, for a second, that described this sensation as the dark playground. And, <laughs> Good. and because it's, yes, it's fun. Yes, on the surface, it's easy, but actually the, this, the emotion underneath that is what you described. It's guilt. It can be shame. It can feel, you, you really know this isn't where I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I also know that I'm so conscious of what I put into my body, like how physically what I'm consuming and water and, you know, making sure that you, I'm eating well and all of those things that, I understand that in doing that and drinking too much, I am sabotaging my body and I need my body to be able to perform at the highest level for me to live the life, to be the mom, to be the leader that I want to be. And so there's just all sorts of things on many different levels that were wrapped up in that time. And it was just coming from this anxiety that I know a lot of people felt and especially small business owners felt of you you've worked hard to put all these plans into place and that first week we didn't know and so we were trying to make decisions without knowing if we were making the right decision or when or how and so you're really making decisions in the dark which is yes. just even more anxious and so it was just this feeling like i was on shaky ground and knowing that you know if it's alcohol for me or food for someone else or whatever, that there is something you could reach for that pretty quickly is going to make you feel better than you did. So yeah, a quick fix. Yeah. Quick fix. So yeah, I had a, I had a few days of that. And then, you know, as, as I often do, I just was like, knock it off, dude, to myself. <laughs> talk, talk about that moment. Was there a specific moment? Do you remember it? Or was there just a sort of phase where you started going, okay, I, I'm not doing that. Yeah, it's usually, I just feel like I've done it so many times. And I talk I talk about this a lot and I teach about this a lot that it's, I'm, I have zero fear of failure. I'm not afraid to fail at all. Why? I mean, this is, I get this question a lot, I think on a, several levels. So one, at, at the risk of sounding maybe cheesy, my childhood was so difficult that I felt like I was always in failure. I was always at no, I was always at hard, you know? And so I'm like, what? Oh, okay. I'm going to try and write a book. No one's going to read it. Like that's nowhere near as painful as my past. So yes. why would I care about this little thing when I've been through so much worse? Um, and then also I think of just, honestly, I have stood up from falling down over and over and over that the motion of getting back up again truly feels like one of the most normal occurrences in my life. So even in even in this crazy pandemic, I was just like, whoop, I know how to do this. 
talk to myself, knock it off. This is not who we want to be. Let's figure it out. And I did. So it was a self-conversation and you say, okay, enough of this. Yeah. You've had your week of self-pity. Yeah. Put your big pants on yeah. and you get yeah. on with it. And I can tell, so a couple, because I love tactics. So a couple of things I can tell y'all who are listening, if it is helpful, is before I was able to have these conversations in my head, it was very helpful for me to have them in a journal. So I will set a, an amount of time uh, and I'm not allowed to leave the journal until that time is up. Mm. So that might mean that I have to sit there and stare at a blank page, but the reality is you won't. Uh, so you'll write for a minute and then you kind of run out of things to talk about. And then if you have to sit there for 25 more minutes, you'll sit and you'll sit and then you're like, okay. And you just keep writing. And I find that the real stuff starts to work its way up and out if I sit there. So it ends up being sort of like self-therapy. And a lot of times me having a conversation with myself in journal form allow me to be really honest about what I'm scared of, what is giving me anxiety. And I also will find the solution in that writing as well. Is it just free flow yeah. writing? It's just whatever your mind is producing is going on that page. Yeah. And it depends on, you know, if I'm having a, let's say like a feeling of a negative feeling or sort of feeling like I'm living in a state of suffering. So if I'm having anxiety, if I'm, you know, mad at my husband or whatever, that's one kind of journal. That's me just kind of peeling back the layers, trying to just talk, 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 talk to, to see through what's really up. But then I also have the journal work I did yesterday because I'm, I took the day off. So I had turned in the book on Saturday, the new book. And then I had Sunday, but I was like, you're going to have two days in a row. So I took yesterday off. It's the first day I've taken off in quarantine. And mm. I tried to, and it actually was very effective. Um, I asked myself, I do this a lot. Um, I'll say, if you could spend this day anyway, how would you spend it? And I then try and create, what is it about the experience that you're wanting that you can create in the moment that you're in? So for me yesterday, I was like, if I could do anything in the world, I would be at my favorite spa. Okay, well, what do you do at that spa that you love so much? And so I have never done this at a spa, but this was the closest I could get to like a jacuzzi moment. I took a bath and I drank a beer in the bathtub, <laughs> which was the most decadent. I don't know how I'm 37 years old and I never tried to have a beer in a bathtub before, but that was delightful. And then I took a nap and then I journaled because anytime I'm at a spa, I'll sit down with like tea and I'll just write for a long time. So um, I did an hour and a half journaling and I asked myself, my next big birthday is 40. So I'm two and a half years away from 40. And I envision like it's my 40th birthday party and all my friends are there and all my family's there. Who am I? Like that woman that's standing there on my 40th birthday, who is she? And who's there and what memories does she have? And so if I can envision my ideal dream 40-year-old version of myself, well, then that gives me a roadmap that gives me an idea that gives me a sense of what I need to be doing today or what do I need to be living out today that will make that future version of myself come true. Who do you want at your 40th birthday? So I wrote, it's funny, I wrote it out of what that birthday party would be and who would be there. Just this incredible collection of 
we have so many very dear friends who are like family to us. And it's this eclectic mix of like artists and dreamers and um, really interesting people from all different backgrounds who sort of make no sense together and yet somehow work perfectly. And so I was just kind of writing about our friendship group as it exists, but then hoping that that's even more expansive. And I thought, I'm going to stand at my 40th birthday party and I'm going to read this part of my journal. Oh, that's cool. And they're going to look around and realize that that's what's in the room. Like I will have created this in, in the room. I imagined your list that you're creating to include people that aren't actually in your inner circle right now, but you would like to be in your inner circle. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Come on. Who give, give us a couple of names. Um, the Rock will be at my 40th birthday party. And that, yes, is, not, that is not um, at all the kind of friends that I normally adopt. But I have, and my community knows, I have like a weird, I admire him so much because one of my, like I told you, my value and leadership is hard worker. Um, my grandparents were farm hands. And so there's a lot of like, um, pride that I have in a job well done and working very hard. And he just emulates that for me. My husband was in the entertainment industry for a really long time. So I don't know that there's anybody in the entertainment industry that has a better reputation than he does for treating people well and being kind. And so there's just all these things that I really admire about him. Yes. Lots to admire. Yeah. It's been a joke forever that we're going to be friends, but we really are. I asked uh, a few people ahead of time uh, on social media, what I should ask you what's essential to ask you. And here are some of them. One was, what have you personally cut from your life because it's not essential? I would say it, it may be surprising for people because I've built such a career for myself on social media, but I don't consume social media. Mm. Uh, and when I, it's funny, because uh, yeah, I'll teach on this quite a lot. It is such a time suck. It is such a distraction. So for me, social media is a place to create or to put things out in the world. I want to continue to put goodness out in the world. I want to continue to talk about the things that I believe in, but I will go create, like I'll go put something on social and then I don't look to see if people liked it. I don't know how many likes it got. I'm not paying attention to followers. I just, I want to create and then I want to let it be. Um, about 10 years ago, I cut out TV. So I don't watch TV. I couldn't tell you anything that's on Netflix. Literally for the first time in a decade, I started watching a series inside of quarantine and you're going to laugh. I've always wanted to watch it. It's the only thing that's ever interested me in 10 years. And that's Downton Abbey. I'm on episode five. I love it. <laughs> I'm a huge history nerd. So I am loving it. Where are you in the story? I'm only on episode five. So I barely, I'm, I'm taking it oh in, in small doses. Well, because I can't, I just hate, I mean, I think you'll get this. I hate feeling like I lost time. I hate it. I hate the idea of you went on to look at, let's say, Instagram or TikTok or something, and I'm human, this, it certainly happens to me too. And you mean to go on for a minute and you lose an hour. Oh, I hate it. Because there's nothing, nothing came out of that. Nothing. There was nothing good in it for me. And so um, TV and streaming and shows is 
is that in a lot of ways. It's funny because I have a show on uh, Quibi, which is this new network. And I think it's funny because I like to create things, but I don't want to consume them. But I see that, that a connection here between you saying that with social media, I hate losing an hour, and then this rapid, intense writing project that you've just completed, right? Those are related. Absolutely. Have you seen Hamilton? Yes. Okay, so Hamilton's so yes. well done on so many levels. Don't you want him to be at your 40th birthday party? Yes. You know what? Thank you. Yes, I do want Lynn to be there too. That I would really... I The, the overwhelming emotion I had the first time I saw Hamilton and I wept, wept through it was pride of this human I do not know in Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I just kept thinking, how did you do that? Yes. How did you do that? And I just kept imagining this man. And I know he had a name at that point, but him going to someone and saying, I'm going to write a musical that's like rap and hip hop. And it's about Alexander Hamilton. And I, you know that nobody believed in that. And I'm so inspired by people who like find a way to make their thing a thing. Anyway, that's not the point. Yeah, but it kind of is the thing because yes, there is real genius in what he's created. And that's really the phenomenon is that you sit there going, how are you operating on this many levels yes. with each piece, with each word, with each, uh, all the reflective music. So the, the story is being told on multiple levels at different points in the show. So yes. there's the, the amazement at the achievement that you're experiencing, but then yes, you, you've got to go back to like, well, who is this person? And, 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 and what was their journey to this moment? Because this is where the applause happens, but this is not where the genius was happening. Yes. And I think for me, I, I have so many ideas. I don't I I could write books from now until forever and I would not run out. And I've learned over the years at the beginning of every year that I will choose these are the creative ideas that I will work on this year. And I can only be these things and I can't do more than this because otherwise I'll get excited and try and take on more than I can actually achieve. The most disappointed I could be would be to get to the end of a year and have gotten so distracted that I didn't work on the creative projects I wanted to build out. Or the reason I mentioned Hamilton is because in that musical, one of his things is like, why are you writing like you're running out of time? Oh, so, yes. You know, so there's this part of me that's like, oh, you have all these ideas and these characters are real in your mind. And if you don't write them down, what if they go away? Or I don't know. And so I just hate the idea of losing an hour doing what matters to me because I was looking at, you know, outfits on Instagram. This is a bit morbid, but I downloaded that, uh, I can't think of the name of the app now, but the, uh, you, you set a date uh, in the future for something and it will tell you how many days are left until that moment. Oh, like a countdown but, um, or? Yes, countdown. Thank yeah. you, a countdown app. And and I put on there my sort of estimated date of expiration. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thought to consider. I think it's most people don't consider it, and then well, they miss don't, the they opportunity. Don't, they don't want to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because because I think it does feel morbid to people. But for me, it just reminds me 
man, what are you waiting for? You've just got to get on and do it. You, you, and I just had a, the most amazing conversation with somebody, a, um, a musician. She's written thousands of songs in her life, and she had a, a stroke not very long ago, unfortunately. But she was expressing to me something that was a little different than I'd ever thought about uh, a mission before, you know, this essential mission in life. She was really saying that now in her life, she is trying to make sure that in this encore that she's been given, that she will complete everything she needs to, and here's the phrase, and leave nothing undone. Mm, that's good. And that was such a different way of thinking about it because, you know, sort of in the first half of your life, and maybe we keep going generally with the same impression, oh, we've got a, a sense of mission, an essential mission to live, and a, a unique mission, but it's still a general sense of purpose. Even if we attach goals to it, it's the idea of ever expanding. But for her, she's on the other side of this now, and she has been so consistent in living her mission. She's been a source of great inspiration to me. And, and now she's like, no, I'm trying to finish it. And that changes for me the orientation towards thinking about what goals to set. Like there is a mission to fulfill and I want to figure it out with enough clarity in my life that at the end I go, and it's done. Yeah. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Greg. Do you know Brendan Burchard? You know, the author Brendan yes. Burchard? Yeah. So Brendan, yes. I've heard him teach before on this topic and it's so fantastic. It's the idea of mortality motivation, meaning that you either experience a near-death experience or you lose someone unexpectedly and that loss reminds you that you are human and that there is a certain amount of days that we are all given and that understanding that the next 50 years are not guaranteed for you. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed for you. Understanding that hopefully shifts the way that we look at what we do with the time that we have left. 
one of the stories that I was writing about in the book was last September, my brother-in-law died of a heart attack unexpectedly. And my sister, who is in her 40s, they met when she was 12 and Michael was 13. And so Hmm. they had been together since they were children. And so this man has been uh, a brother to me my whole life. Like I don't have a memory in my life because I'm my sister's nine years older than me. So I don't have a memory that wasn't with him around. Hmm. So it wasn't just the loss of a brother-in-law. It was the loss of a brother. And um, it was a a sudden heart attack at 46. It was not something anybody um, expected. And we, I was writing the story of, of going up to Oregon where they live for his funeral. And at his funeral, they, um, a lot of people do this where they'll play a video montage with pictures of the person's life. And, you know, it starts when they're baby and sort of works its way up and it keeps passing. And then you see him, you know, meet my sister and then you see their daughter and him, and then you see their son and him, and you're sort of watching the story of his life. And, it's beautiful and it's sad. And in Michael's case, it was cut off, you know, far too soon. And we got in the car to, to go, you know, to the reception. And my husband was like, man, I can't stop thinking about that video. And I, assuming that I knew, you know, what he, I'm like, oh, I know, right. It's like so sad that it, you know, it just sort of ends like it, he's 46 and that this is the last picture is the last picture. And Dave said, yeah, it is. But what I keep thinking is that we still have time to make the pictures that are going to go in our montage, mm-hmm. that we still mm-hmm. have the opportunity to live a life that's worthy of the photo montage, that when we get to the end, that you know, cause this, again, this maybe sounds morbid in the same way that, you, you know, your countdown does to some people. But for me, the pictures that go in the montage at your funeral are supposed to be the highlights. They're supposed to be the best. They're supposed to be the pictures that represent who you were. And so I, I wrote about this in a book and then I ended up telling my kids that later that evening, like, man, guys, I, I hope for you, but, but certainly hope for myself that I live my life in a way that fills up the montage. It makes me think of not just, you know, the very, very end question of our lives, but also recognizing how short certain periods of our life are. I was uh, reading a brilliant graphic essay uh, online called The Tail End. And one of the things that the author points out there is that when you leave your home, you've had 94% of the FaceTime you're ever going to have with your parents. Wow, that's crazy. It makes me want to cry a little bit. (laughs) Tell me this. What do you want to be at 50? You've talked about 40, and that's quite a tangible thing. But I suspect that as your life has evolved, you are already finding yourself doing things and being involved with things that if they existed at all for you, they were barely a dream. Yeah, for sure. But they're happening now and they're real. And I think I saw a post that you've done of when you were with you were with Oprah on her 2020 vision thing, right? And I could imagine for you going, not just, whoa, this is so cool. Or, this is a good moment. But a secondary reaction of, well, what does this all mean? Absolutely. I think that that was most of 2018 for me. 2018 
uh, February of 2018 was when Girl, Wash Your Face came out. And the response to that book was beyond, like just not even a, not something you could replicate, not something you could try for. And I certainly wasn't. I mean, I think, I think Girl, Wash Your Face has sold four and a half million copies. And that's just crazy. It's crazy. People don't know what that means, right? Like- no, I'll tell you what it means. The fifth book, the book right before it sold 12,000 copies an insane, insane thing and not something I was trying to do. That book was turned down by so many people. Like it's hilarious how that all came to be. But um really yeah. You I, didn't but come on, come on. You you've got to have known you've got to have known that it was going to do well. No. I honestly because really? I, I was a blogger for a very long time and I had been blogging those kind of stories for a very long time. Nobody I mean, I had an audience, but it was small. It was never, never, never like I, with any book, frankly, with anything that I create, I just do my best that I can do. I think five years later, it could have been something greater, but at that, I just like, Hey, I'm going to do the best that I can with the time I have. I'm going to turn it in and hope for the best. And I knew that it was, um, it was the first time that I ever got an advance that was actually like a legit amount of money, um, <laughs> right. you know, and it's still like a hilarious, hilarious. If you know what the advance is versus what the book did. But for me, I was like, I am rich. I am rich. <laughs> got $50,000. I am about to go, you know, there's like, I'd never, my my previous book advances were like $8,000. Like I just couldn't even fathom that kind of money. And so <laughs> I know it's hilarious because you understand the publishing world. Um, but it was such a huge deal for me. So I was like, okay, great. I'm moving up. But even in that, I thought it was because just the amount of time I had been an author. Um, but never, ever in my life did I think um, it would be what it was. So I spent the bulk of um, I would say the last six months of 18 freaking out um, because it, the book also was not an overnight success, which people don't know. It, it was or wasn't? No, it was not. It made the New York Times list 13 weeks after it came out. That's not a thing. Really? Yeah, it's not. For, what gave it the spark? Uh, word of mouth. It truly was just this crazy thing that happened. I didn't have press for it. I didn't. We didn't ha- like, there was nothing, nothing. It, it is. And my career, this is the definition of my career, my success with my business, everything I have spent 15 years, I've been an entrepreneur for 17 years. I've spent 15 of those years building a community online and I keep serving my community and she keeps serving me back. So this, to me, the book was my community who'd been with me, even though it was a small but mighty group of people were like, this is the book. And they told their friends and they bought it for their sisters and they handed it around. The community made the book what it is and is what makes it continue to sell so well today. But somebody listening to this goes, okay, well, before the book came out, you had what approximate followers on Instagram as this book comes out? On Instagram, 30,000. When the book came out, you had 30,000 followers? Yes. Are you kidding me? I didn't know this. Yeah, so the, I would say that I had a I had a much bigger following on Facebook, um, but I hadn't been on, I, let's say I had ooh, a couple hundred thousand on Facebook. I wish I had the exact numbers for you. Um, but it was 
I went from, um, I want to say like it slowly built up, built up. I remember it getting to a hundred thousand and me thinking, holy crap, this is insane. And it went from a hundred thousand to a million in six months. It was wild. So this was the phenomenon. This was the period where you went, I've been doing the same thing consistently the whole time and you're still doing the same thing consistently now in a sense. Yep. But this was the breakthrough where suddenly it's just happening. That was the tipping this, point. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. That was the breakthrough. Absolutely. So that was so twenty eighteen was the time where you suddenly are like, uh, okay, I'm in new territory now. Yeah. And I describe it as it's like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill which I felt like I had been doing for so many years. And then all of a sudden the boulder slipped over the top and started racing down so fast that I couldn't control it anymore. And I spent the last six months of 18, truly, I just, I wrote about this in the book. It's the first time I've talked about it publicly, truly trying to decide if I even wanted to have any kind of public figure ever again, because it was so so overwhelming. It went from nobody knows about you or this book to suddenly people know about it to people like it. Oh my gosh, a lot of people like it. That's great. But what happens, and I don't know if this happens for everybody or if this is something that is especially reserved for women, um, is that you hit a point where the success starts to become a negative and the success starts to um, put a target on your back that I didn't know it went from, oh my gosh, like people are really enjoying this book to now there was, um, there was a ton of like blogs that came out or press that came out about how my message was hurtful to women and how um, I was a, this is getting into a way deeper conversation than you wanted on your <laughs> podcast, Greg. No, it's not. It's, it's really um, great. But went into a conversation of um, that I was a bad Christian. Um, I'm a preacher's daughter, a preacher's granddaughter. My faith is a big part of who I am, not ever intended to be a big part of my platform, but is a big part of my core. And so publicly to have people, to have press outlets um, question whether or not I was a good Christian, like it was just, it became something so negative that was very hard to come to grips with. So it took me a lot of time. (laughs) What was the criticism on the Christian front? Just you weren't being Christian enough in your book or you? Yeah. So on both sides. So I'm incredibly, (laughs) I'm incredibly liberal. I'm incredibly inclusive. My best friends are gay. I'm like openly supportive of every kind of person. And that was picked up on one side. And then on the flip side was, um, I am an entrepreneur and I have pretty openly pursued this idea of wanting to build, um, to be stable and to have money. And uh, we talked about this earlier. I grew up without any. So um, in the book I had talked about um, saving for years to buy a Louis Vuitton purse. It was like a big (laughs) deal. And so the amount of people who have gone up in arms, which sounds so crazy, but that, um, you know, that I was, you know, chasing wealth and that's not a godly thing. It just, the thing was when something was doing so well, the negative press was press. It was something interesting that people wanted to read. So, but that was hard for me to come to grips with when six months prior, nobody knew who I was. So it just, it took me a minute. What you're describing is really the dark side of success. Yes that really no one tells you about. 
So, you, you know, people see, and I still see this happening, that people see someone who's successful on some vector. You know, it could be in sports, it could be in books, it could be social media, whatever the thing is. And then they create a completely false narrative that yes. everything in their life must be great. Yes. Yeah. And even if they complain or they or not complain, they share what's not great. It's like, yeah, but, but you're all right. I mean, you've got it sorted. It's, and so there's an empathy gap as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like, it sounds ridiculous. Like, Oh, poor little baby, your book, you know, is doing so well. And then people are mean on the internet, but it's just if you've never encountered something like that to that extent and there is no preparation for it, it is – I don't know. There's something interesting, and I, I touch on this a little bit in the book I just turned in, that my experience is this is way worse for women, way worse for women in business, way worse – any any sort of public woman with a public profile, but that when – People don't like something a man creates. They attack the creation. They don't, hey, I don't, I didn't like Greg's book. That book was terrible. They talk about the book, but when they don't like something that a woman creates, they attack her. And that I felt on such a massive level. And I have experienced it for, you know, since that time of so many of my contemporaries who are men who who are in the similar field can do and say anything. And myself and the women that I know, if you care about your brand or the public's perception of it, you have to put everything through 10 different lenses and under a microscope. And what are they going to say about this? Or what are they going to... And it's very simple to say like, oh, well, don't worry about it. But it's just... Uh, we're getting into such a different topic, but it is, I have felt that it is very different. Um, even my husband, who is now doing similar work, can say and do things that nobody bats an eyelash. And if I say or do the exact same thing, uh, you know, there's 5,000 comments about me, you know, oh, you're chasing the wrong things. I can't believe you're, you care only about money. And I'm like, are you kidding right now? My best example I'm going off, Greg. Not, <laughs> I'm not going to pull over the soapbox. But like my best example, let's say pre-quarantine, because now the world is so different. Male entrepreneurs, it is the coolest thing ever publicly to be a man and be an entrepreneur. And what is so cool about that to people on the internet is these guys on in a private jet driving their Bentley. Like there's such this thing of like wealth and what they've achieved and what if I I'm wearing a pair of jeans that people can publicly tell were something more expensive than Levi's, I will be destroyed in the comments. And I'm not rolling around on a private jet, but it's like, oh, you're, you only care about money. You're, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. That's all. We could do a whole other podcast. What you're saying is that you feel that there is a double standard Yes. And I have, when I first started to really be proud of the success that I was achieving with my company, I kept wondering, like, why don't I have any examples of like, where are the women? Where are the women? Where are the women? And I started to research and I could name them for you, but I won't. It's going to sound like I'm calling it out, but there's so many women who have built incredible businesses. And I'm like, why aren't these women talking about their success? Why aren't they talking about what they've built or what they've achieved? 
even to a tenth of the degree that these men are. And what I realized, and for a while I was like, maybe it's my job to lead out. Like maybe I'm supposed to not in an obnoxious way, but just talk a little bit about because of what I've been able to build, I was able to buy my grandparents a house because they didn't have retirement. Like I've been able to take care of my family. I've given 10% of company profits away for you. I've given millions of dollars. Like the things that I've been able to do because of what I've built, I'm really proud of. And so I started to talk about those things and the reaction was so intense that I'm like, oh, this is why women don't talk about it Mm. because it's easier because it becomes a distraction from the mission of your business. Because why in the world would you take all of this punishment for something that like you could open up right now? And these guys are like, here I am in my private jet. And I'm like, there is, there is no, you will not see a female entrepreneur doing that and being respected and having, no, it's not a thing. Do you feel like it's equal criticism from men and women? No, only from women. That's a very good question. And at the core of it, now, of course, it's all guesswork, I suppose, but is it women criticizing you because they feel somehow self-critical themselves, that they feel worse about what they're doing when they look at it, that they're comparing and therefore being judgmental? I don't know that it's that. I I feel like people are, I don't want to see a, don't want to say afraid, but people don't like things that are other. They don't like things that are different. And we haven't seen a lot of examples of that. And so I think when you start to see those conversations in a a medium like social media, which has predominantly been a place where women are showing off clothes or talking about being a mother, talking about being a wife and someone comes along and says, I, I am those things. I am a a very proud wife and very close to my children and care about that deeply. And also I've built this thing. And I think that it's, it just strikes people as so other that they think it's wrong or that it's, or that in some way you're implying that that's what she is supposed to want for her life. And I try and say this a ton. I wrote an entire book about this concept that you you don't have to want my life. You don't want to have to want hers or anyone else's. I think that you should want to pursue more. I think that you should want to pursue a better version of yourself than you were yesterday, but that doesn't have to look like being a founder or a CEO. That could look like being the best mom in the entire world. And that's beautiful. But I think that because it's so different than what they're used to seeing, that that narrative somehow implies that they're wrong. And so they attack it. And it makes me sad because I think that there's a whole generation of young women who are maybe only looking at having a big career instead of building an entire company. Mm. And my, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm raising four kids who only know a world where a woman can build something from scratch and can build it up and can create what I have worked really hard to, to create. 2018 was the year, right? If you're marking the line, that's where it all takes off. That's also where you're suddenly uh, challenged 
the dark side of success, the, mm-hmm. the, the other side that no one talks about. But how we got to this point in the conversation was this idea of you start to experience things in life that you go, whoa, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. What is this experience preparing me for? Yes. Because it's not just for you. And at least the way I would imagine it for you, there are moments where you say, oh, those little impressions I had about my own mission in life aren't a joke. They weren't just frivolous. They weren't just grandiosity. This is really coming to be. Yeah. I think I continue. What's interesting is that you have a moment like that. And then you, I still have moments where I'm like, oh, wait, this is what it was for. Oh, wait, no, this is what it was for. Oh, it's still revealing itself mm. in all the ways that I, I honestly said to Dave in quarantine, because we immediately, once I sort of had that bad week, we rallied and we got our community involved and we did a challenge and we're going to be intentional and we're going to, and we did all of this work with our community to serve them in this time and continue to do this work while we're in quarantine. And we had a live event. We just, we did all of this stuff. And um, I thought I had this moment where I'm like, what if, and this sounds very grandiose, but I, I believe that a lot of, what I have and the opportunity that I have been given is because of something greater than me has given me the opportunity. And I thought, wow, what if girl wash your face happened so that in quarantine, people would listen to you, tell them to have hope Mm. truly. Like what if you thought it was for this whole thing over here And what if it was never for that? What if it was for something you don't even see yet? Because I really do believe that, I really honestly believe that every single thing in my life and every single thing that has happened could all be so one person hears one thing on a random Tuesday that changes everything. Like I honestly believe that that is how life works, that everything that has happened for me, to me, all of these things could be leading to a moment so that someone could hear something that would help them become the person they were supposed to be 25 years later. And not that I would say something profound, but just that I would be in the right place at the right time to say that thing for that person. Well, I think that you're saying two things there. One is that it's about the one, you know, the individual always caring about that person. But also there's a second idea, which is there's a bigger plan going on and I'm just a piece of that plan. And I'm like watching it unfold as I'm going along myself. Absolutely. I, I fundamentally believe, and I, I, I've said this um, a lot. I've talked about this a lot of how was one of the questions I'll get often is how, um, how do you hold, how do you hold space? So I, we do these conferences and it's three days and it could be, you know, 8,000 women for three days. And I'm on stage for four or five hours a day. And Hmm. if I think about what that is, if I think about the responsibility of that, I could never get on stage. It's too much. It's, it's too much. And so for as long as I've been speaking you know, let's say for the past couple of years, been speaking at the level of crowds that I have, 
my prayer before I get on stage every single time is always, God, just give me one. Mm. Just give me one. Let there be one person in this audience today that hears something that you wanted them to hear, that they were meant to be in this space. Just give me one. Because if I can focus on that one, not knowing who they are, then there's no um, fear or there's no uh, anxiety. There's no nerves because then it's not about me. Mm. It's about them. Do you imagine the one in a general way or do you have a a clear vision of who that person is you're trying to speak to? No, I don't. I, I, um, I don't believe it's my job to figure out them or what they're supposed to hear. Mm. I just, I believe that I'm supposed to do the best that I can with what I know that day. And that I hope that somewhere in there is a message that someone needed And frankly, like it could be that someone needed to laugh or someone needed to be in community with other women or someone needed to hear that they matter. I mean, who knows? Or even sometimes it's not, it isn't the words at all, is it? it? It can be that they just hear something that isn't actually being spoken. Yes, absolutely. But that they, they get their own message. This has happened to me definitely in life where I've attended somebody else is teaching, speaking, some other event, and it's not the words, it's not something I can quote that they've said, but they've been operating in a certain way with a certain spirit, with a certain degree of light, that somehow some other message comes to me that is what I really need. A hundred percent. You want to be able to increase the level of light in your sphere of influence. Yes. So much of what I'm trying to build and what I continue to lean into, and I, I hope that I keep getting closer and closer to this, and I think that I will as I continue to get older, and I think that I truly think the blessing in quarantine was the reminder of what matters in the world, what really matters, what what is true and good when all else is is stripped away, and that it's different for, I mean, this is the, the idea behind what is essential is that it's different for all of us and that what is essential to you has power because, or it, it matters because you matter, but that the closer that we can get to that, the closer that we can cling to what really matters to us is, is a happy life, is a more joyful life, is a, just a better existence. I was reading this book. I I read so many books. And so please do not laugh at this topic. But I was reading about angels. So I'd never read a book like that. And I just was curious what people say about angels. And so I was reading yeah. uh, this that, book on no, angels. No, nothing and, funny about that to me. Yeah. I think that's great. great yeah, subject. so it was like angels and like spirits and whatever. It was just like, I picked it up on a trip. And one of the things that she was talking about was... Um, what things in life give you energy, what gives you joy, what, br- what fills your cup, what fills your spirit and how I interpreted it for myself was what brings me joy. And so I started to do a lot of work in myself on what is my joy list and what is, what are the things that bring me joy? But what I loved is that when she was describing her, the things that filled her up, however she described it, I can't remember all of the things on her list, but I remember that she loved textiles. She was like, I just love a 
good, like the textiles and the texture and the design and the whatever. And she was describing it in such a way that you knew that it brought her so much happiness. And I was like, I have never in my life cared at all about textiles. And I love that what is good for us as humans is different based on who is having the conversation. But that hopefully we can let go of needing to live into what society thinks we're supposed to be or a family of origin thinks we're supposed to be and just um, pursue a life that is authentic to us just to remember what matters. And in order to know what matters, you have to know yourself. And that can be one of the biggest challenges because everywhere we go, there we are. And so I remember Anna pointed out to me um, years into our marriage, she said, have you ever thought about the fact that this little, this factory of ideas that you have is like, have you ever thought that's just like a gift that that's, it's it's not, it's not everybody's, not everyone's brain is doing that. You know, not everyone's built that way. And it was sort of news to me because I thought, well, first of all, you don't want the muse taken away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so suddenly it, you're aware of that in a different way, but also you just go, yeah, this uniqueness sometimes is the hardest thing to see. And how do you actually see it? How do you see it when it's so familiar? Well, I sat down that day, you know, me and my trusty journal, and I challenged myself to write down 20 things that made me so happy. And Hmm. I think that people struggle with it the more that they second guess what it's supposed to be. So Hmm. for me, I was like, no judgment. Like I'm just going to make my list and I'm going to write down anything that just makes me feel really happy and joyful. And so the very first thing on my list is coffee. And the second Mm -hmm. thing on my list is also coffee. So my first, <laughs> it is, I, my first thing on my list is a slow cup of coffee with a view, like where you don't have to rush, where you can sit and have your coffee really slowly while looking at something pretty. And my mm-hmm. second thing is getting to go to independent coffee houses. So this has been a little hurt in, in quarantine, but getting to go into an, into an independently owned coffee house and just, yes. I love like, what is your best drink and how is it a pour over is it i'm just a nerd i really love coffee um and so i made a list and some things were simple like slow cup of coffee and some things were bigger like international travel but by challenging myself to come up with that list i now know 20 things and at least 10 of them are things that i can incorporate into any day of the week very easily and so that means I can build a day that's filled with joyful things. Every morning of my life, I have a slow cup of coffee with a view because I intentionally wake up early so that that can be part of my day. And the slow piece means that I have to wake up before any child of mine is awake. But if I know what matters, if I know what makes me happy, then it's so easy to plan it into my life. At first, I did it in a calendar. Like I would plan in, go to a cute coffee house on your lunch break. But now those things are so regular for me that I don't have to think about them. I just do them. They've become meaningful rituals for you. Yes. 
And I just feel like my life is so much more peaceful and it feels so much, um, I feel so much more content because when I made that list, I think the only item on it that was, that was a costly item was travel. It was the only thing. And obviously Mm. traveling on vacation is not something I do very often. So it wasn't like my list didn't have like designer clothes or that's not, those aren't my, that's not my style. And so to, to be conscious of the fact that everything that I love about my life really doesn't have money attached to it is a reminder of when I start to go too hard at work, when I start to feel this, like whatever, it's like, wait a minute, this is not even what we're chasing. This is not even what matters. This thing matters. And so I feel Mm -hmm. such a sense of contentment in doing this practice for the last like year and a half. Well, and, and what I hear you saying is it's a high joy per dollar ratio. Yes. And when you say this practice over the last few years, you mean you identified the list one time and now have continued to try and craft and define and design a day and practices and rituals around that list. Yes. Is that right? And and bonus points when you can have multiple items on your list happen at once. Yeah, I love this. You're using as the building blocks pure joy. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's like joy Lego. Yeah. So you get to whatever you build in almost any combination is going to be joyful for you. Yes. I mean, we talk about this idea of JOMO, uh, the, you know, <laughs> yes. the joy of I missing out. Absolutely. I love, I love to miss out on the stuff other people are really into. I'm such a homebody. So I get that. But with this, it's like somehow double joy because it's, it's, you're building a specific set of joy of missing out. You're going just because you love this stuff doesn't mean I have to incorporate it. Yeah. Yeah. Skiing's a perfect example for me. I I feel like I'm supposed to do skiing. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that's what people do. Yeah. Once you're successful, you and, and not even if you're successful, just skiing's a thing. You've got to do skiing, and 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 I I don't want to do skiing. That there's no that there's no space in my life for skiing. I'm not yeah. interested in this, and yet somehow you feel the pressure to do it. But I love this exercise you suggested. And, and I look forward to doing it and having each of us in our family doing it because then you start to have signature joy days. Yes. And I think for your kids, it's powerful, but it's really powerful for partners to know what makes your person so happy. It's about recognizing that what's essential to someone else needs to be as essential to us as that person is to us that's really good i feel like that's a quote that you need to like put somewhere (laughs) (laughs) well i'm talking to someone who would know you come with high credibility on that there you go there you go the dots that i want to connect here bringing this together to what is essential is that often and i would say far too often people think of essentialism or they may think of it as sort of a a productivity type approach to life. 
And there is overlap. So I'm not saying it's completely crazy to make that connection, but it's not how I think about it. Yes, it's about getting the right things done, but it's also about creating a type of experience in life. Instead of an experience in life that is overwhelmed and exhausted, that's stretched too thin, that's busy but not productive, and also constantly comparative with other people where you, you, you're not just stretched too thin yourself, but you're constantly looking at what everyone else is doing and, oh, I, I need to do everything the way they're all doing it. It's to put all of that aside so that you can live this essential experience, an experience that is joy and will be as different to each person as my closet is to yours. Yes. Right. Like we could both essentialize our closet, get rid of the stuff that doesn't spark joy and so on. The process is the same, but at the end, right, none of your clothes are going to fit me and none of mine will fit you. And that's the whole point. But yours will spark joy for you. Mine will spark joy for me. And the same with trying to create an essentialist lifestyle is that it will be full and rich in joy and the example and practice you just described is a, is a terrific um, embodiment, a practical way for us to be able to leap forward in this way. That's so good. And I love, for me at least, it makes so much sense to start with this idea of what is unique to you, what matters to you, that it can be different than anybody else's, that it can be different than the people in your house, but that it's about building a life that is your own. It's exactly the right spot for us to be at in the conversation. This conversation today, this podcast as it exists, its intent is to try to remind and inspire people with a single idea, which is that they have a unique and essential mission to live, that no one can live for them. And, and that's where all this joy is. That's where all the satisfaction and that's where all the contribution will grow out of. And Rachel, you're doing that. And I'm excited, thrilled for your uh, journey, but also so curious where things will be, not just the 40th birthday. I'm sure you'll get, you know, <laughs> achieve what you've just set out in your journal, but, but, but 50. And, and then of course, beyond that 60 and so on, that there's, there's a great, important, highly impactful mission that lies ahead. And, uh, and I, I'm just happy to be on the sidelines cheering you on. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. I have, I have really appreciated the conversations that we've had so far that we've been able to have offline too. So I'm excited. I'll see if I can't send you an invitation to the 40th birthday party. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's, you, 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 I know you feel obliged, but now you've said it. Now it's I have the you record. And Anna, you're gonna fly out to Hawaii. It'll be a whole thing. It's, Let's make it's, it. It's 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 Anna and myself and the Rock. That's who's Perfect. coming. That's it. That's it. That's the circle of friends. We did it. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.